in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. Today probably sounds a little different from my normal episodes because I'm actually recording this while I'm in a hotel room in Las Vegas. I'm attending yet another tech conference, but this episode is more in line with our normally scheduled episodes. This one is from a listener request, and the listener in this case wished to remain anonymous. And so I am going to uh, to completely comply with his or her wishes, but wanted to know more about end-to-end encryption, which has been in the news a lot, particularly in the UK. Uh, end-to-end encryption is a means of sending information securely, and it has positive aspects and, uh, depending upon who you are, negative aspects. We're going to cover all of that, explain what end-to-end encryption is and how it works. Uh, It's been in the news for a couple of years for multiple reasons. One is that some folks in government agencies have made a stink about the technology because they say it gives bad actors like criminals and terrorists the ability to communicate secretly with one another. That, in a sense, is true, but I think it oversimplifies the issue. The tech actually allows any two people to communicate secretly with one another. So in other words, it's a tool that can be used by people who are bad, but it in itself is not a bad tool. It's a tool that has tons of legitimate uses that have nothing to do with terrorism or crime. So as an example, let's say you are running a record label and it's your job to sign new acts to this record label. In the old days, you would do all this in person, but today you can do a lot of your business, practically all of your business, over the Internet. So you can negotiate with the act, you can come to an agreement on terms, you can draw up a contract, and you can send it over for them to sign and then send it back for you to countersign. But you want all this information to remain confidential. The terms of one agreement with one act could be very different from the terms you set with another act. To lure a really big act to your label, you might have to include more attractive terms for that act, like better percentages. But you don't necessarily want to do that with every act you're signing. It might not merit it in some cases. The amount of investment a label might make in an unproven act could end up being unrewarded down the line. So you would rather have the details of contracts remain secure and not get leaked to the general public because then your negotiation tools are made plain for everyone to see. It opens up the opportunity for various acts to say, hey, how come they got such a sweet deal and we didn't? Uh, And, you know, it's all part of business. So you would rather have a means to send all this information in a way so that even if someone were to intercept the messages, No one who didn't, you know, didn't have authority would ever understand what it actually says. Now that particular idea has been around for as long as we have had secrets. How do you communicate a secret to someone else without anyone else finding out about it, particularly if you can't whisper it quietly to that person? You have to come up with a means to hide the meaning of your message in some way. And there are a lot of different ways to do this. So, for example, steganography is a way, and I covered that in a previous episode of Tech Stuff with my friend Ariel, who joined me for that episode. Steganography is the practice of hiding a message within some other form of non-secret data, like uh, an image or a music file. You could literally hide the message inside the image, meaning that unless you know what to look for, you're not likely to discover the message. That's not the most secure way of doing it, obviously, but it is something you can do. I remember collecting old Gru the Wanderer comic books by Sergio Aragones, who would hide a secret message in every single issue. Typically, it would read, this is the hidden message. So not super duper helpful, but that would be one way of doing it. However, you could also hide the information within the uh, actual text or, or the, the, the file information of the image itself. So instead of like hiding it physically inside the image, you're hiding it in the code that represents the image. And it's only if you know to look at that code that you would even see that there was a message there. The whole point is you're concealing that secret message inside some other non-secret information that you can freely distribute. So you can send that photo out being reasonably confident that people are not going to 
see that there's a secret message there. You only know that it's there if you know to look for it. At least that's the theory or the hope. Obviously, if someone is super nosy and just curious and they start looking at these things more closely, they might uncover that message. So it's not always the most secure methodology. Cryptography, which means to make communication secret, is a very broad category, and encryption falls into that category. Encryption is the specific process to make hidden or secret. The two terms are often used interchangeably, but technically they are distinct, though I guess if enough people use them interchangeably for long enough, the meaning itself will change, because that's how language works, but that's a bonus episode, I guess. So with encryption, you would use some sort of process to encrypt the data. You would use a cipher to take a plain message, the secret that you wish to communicate, and you would turn it into something that the average person would not be able to understand. But your intended recipient would have the knowledge of how to reverse this process to decipher the mixed up message so that he or she could read the original secret. So let's take a super simple example, one that would never be used in modern day encryption. Let's take a basic substitution cipher in which we swap out letters for other letters. In a super simple version of this, our two communicators have agreed that for the purposes of their messaging, they will shift all letters over by one so that an A will be represented by the letter B. A B will be represented by the letter C and so forth until you get to Z, which will be represented by the letter A. So if I wanted to write out uh, J-O-N as my sign-off, you know, shortening my name to John, I would actually use the letters K-P-O. My recipient would receive this message and say, ah, I must decipher it by cleverly stepping back each letter by one position, and I get J-O-N. Oh, it was Jonathan who sent me this message. Now, clearly, anyone could crack that code. It would not take any sort of master code breaker to do it. You don't need a computer to do it. It is the simplest of substitution ciphers, and uh, obviously that would never stand. However, more, much more complicated ciphers have been used throughout history, and in fact, one of the earliest uses for computers was in decoding encrypted messages. During World War II, computers were dedicated to cracking codes made by physical devices like the Enigma machine. But I've talked about that in previous episodes, so I'm going to move on rather than dwell on it here. Now, in cryptology, people often use examples to explain specific implementations and strategies. This has led to two fictional characters becoming placeholders for these examples. So when you want to say person A and person B, that gets really cumbersome. So those characters are Alice and Bob. If you've ever heard examples using Alice and Bob, it comes from this branch of cryptology. The characters were actually created by three researchers uh, named Ron Rivest, Adi Shamir, and Leonard Aldeman, who came up with the RSA encryption strategy, RSA for the first initial uh, of each uh, of their last names. So Rivest, Shamir, and Adelman, you get RSA. And when they came up with that, they decided they needed to have examples to describe what their whole procedure was, and they invented these characters of Alice and Bob. More on RSA in just a minute. Alice and Bob have become the archetypes for cryptological discussions and beyond that, actually. Alice and Bob are used in lots of different examples for tech, not just cryptology. But basically, the premise boils down to Bob and Alice both wish to communicate with one another without other people being able to intercept and understand those messages. All right, so Alice and Bob, they want to send messages to each other using some sort of computer device. It could be an actual computer, like a desktop or a laptop. It could be a smartphone. It could be a laptop, uh, a tablet computer. It could be any of these things. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is that they want to be able to send electronic messages in some meaningful way. And when Alice and Bob send messages back and forth, their devices aren't doing so directly, right? There's no direct connection between Alice's device and Bob's device unless they happen to be very close together and able to use some sort of technology like near-field communication or NFC. Apart from that, where you're so close you could just whisper it to each other, uh, let's say that you are across the country from one another. Alice is over in California, Bob is in New York. The messages they send to each other are going to go through routers and switches and servers 
and eventually they're going to pass through some sort of central server system before going through even more routers and switches and servers and eventually ending up on the other person's phone. So whatever service Alice and Bob are using, that centralized server, which is the, the you know, kind of like the, the great uh, post service for that particular app, it the message has to pass through there because this is a, a specific app being used, uh, offered by a specific company. So Alice sends Bob a message on their agreed-upon messaging app. Alice's message is going to head out over the Internet, hit the server in charge of handling the messaging service that they are both using, and then continue on until it hits Bob. Now, if the message is in plain text, meaning it's unencrypted, anyone along that pathway could potentially read the contents of that message. That includes hackers who could have compromised a system somewhere along that pathway, and they're trying to pull a man-in-the-middle attack. The message, in other words, is not safe. One way to fix that is through a simple encryption method in which Alice and Bob each have their own private encryption and decryption keys with the server. So let's say Alice and Bob are using a messaging app. Let's call the app XYZ. And XYZ has its server systems. When Alice wants to send Bob a message, she uses her own personal XYZ encryption key to do so and sends it along. No one else other than XYZ has that encryption key. So Alice and XYZ share it, but nobody else does. Her message will get to the server, which sees that Alice wants to send a message to Bob. So the server says, all right, I'll send this to Bob, except Bob can't read it because it's been encrypted with Alice's key. So Bob doesn't have Alice's key. So what the server then does will decrypt the message because it has Alice's key. And it also has Bob's key. So it then re-encrypts the message using Bob's key and then sends that along to Bob. So the message has been encrypted twice, technically. It was encrypted, decrypted at the server level, encrypted again, sent to Bob. Whenever the message is passing over the Internet, it is encrypted, which is pretty safe. But you may say, well, what about the time that it's spending on the server? That's the rub. See, this is not end-to-end encryption. I'll explain that a little bit later. The server is able to decrypt all incoming messages, no matter who is sending them, and then encrypt them with the respective keys belonging to whoever was the intended recipients. But this creates a few different problematic scenarios. One is that governments, they love this strategy because it opens up the possibility that the server could release messages on a court order or some other means, like if the government orders the service to share those messages and the service is compelled to agree to it, then potentially the government could get hold of unencrypted plain text messages because at the server level, everything gets unlocked. So the government agency can go to XYZ and say, we suspect Alice and Bob are plotting something dangerous. We have some evidence, but we want access to the messages they're sending to each other. Uh, Lives could be at stake. And then they flash a warrant or something. And because XYZ is following this strategy, it could hand over such information if ordered to, revealing all the messages between Alice and Bob. And maybe Alice and Bob really were plotting something terrible, and it's prevented as a result. Or... Maybe they're just happy people and their private messages have now been compromised and they were completely innocent and yet their uh, otherwise private communication has now been made at least semi-public. The strategy also creates an incredibly attractive target for hackers, obviously, because if you can compromise that central server, you can get at all the data that's going across it because it gets decrypted there. In fact, this has happened a few times in the past where hackers have managed to get access to such systems and mine them for data and dump all that information onto various places on the web or, more likely, on the dark web. This is where stuff like credit card information or compromising photos can come into play, where hackers have managed to uh, get into a server and, and get all that information. Sure, the messages were encrypted as they went over the Internet, but at that one central point, everything was unlocked and ready for exploitation. 
end-to-end encryption aims to defeat this by creating a strategy in which only Alice and Bob know how to decrypt messages from the other. They have a private means of decrypting information. The central server does not have access to that private decryption key. And so the messages sent across the server are meaningless to the server. It's just gobbledygook. The server could confirm that messages had passed between Alice and Bob. You could say, well, yes, we know that the two have communicated with each other, but they, they, the company wouldn't be able to speak to what was actually in those messages. So if a government agency served up a search warrant, all they would get is some garbled, seemingly random and meaningless data. They would need that private key to make any sense of it. Now, there are companies that absolutely love using this strategy because it really takes the heat off of them. Not only are they able to offer their customers a secure way to communicate, there's no way for the company to know what sort of data is crossing its servers. So it cannot be complicit in anything illegal because it doesn't know what's happening. It provides a service, the one in which people may communicate with one another in a secure fashion, and that's it. But it raises a question, how the heck... Are Alice and Bob supposed to get a private key across to each other, right? If Alice and Bob are apart from one another and their communication requires going through a centralized service, how do they establish a secret means of communication in the first place? If that first message is, hey, let's use this secret code, but it's decrypted by the centralized server, then the centralized server knows the secret code. It doesn't help. Well, the answer comes down to what is called an asymmetric cryptographic algorithm that uses public key cryptography. And in this method, there are two keys that are used for each message. One of them is a public key, which is unique to each user, that can be freely distributed across the Internet. The other is a private key, which is a jealously guarded secret that allows only one entity the chance to decrypt information. I'll speak about more of this in just a minute, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so how does public key cryptography work? Each person using the system, let's call it ABC for this case, we're talking about a different service from XYZ, every single person using ABC gets two encryption keys, or, well, one encryption key and one decryption key, technically. One key is the person's private key. So Alice has a private key that's unique to her, and Bob has a private key. It's unique to him. They, They also each have a public key. So Alice has a public key. Bob has another public key. These are also unique to Alice and Bob, but those keys are published publicly on the service across the Internet. Anyone who wants to send an encrypted message to Alice or Bob must use their respective public keys. In other words, if I want to send Alice a message, I have to use Alice's public key to encrypt it. To decode a message, you have to have the private key. So if you know both keys for a specific message, you can transform that garbled mess into meaningful communication. And because you keep your own private key to yourself, at least ideally, the only person who can decode messages meant for you is you. So, Alice takes Bob's public key and uses it to encode her message to Bob. She then sends the encoded message to Bob across the messaging service. The encoded message passes through ABC's server, which cannot read the message because ABC does not have Bob's private key. Only Bob has that. The message gets to Bob. He uses his private key and it decodes the message, and then he can read it in plain text. But what is actually going on here? How is this happening? Well, that that depends heavily on the specific cryptographic strategy used, but we can go with one of the earliest proposed methods of doing this, the RSA algorithm, the one I mentioned earlier that was proposed by the guys who used Alice and Bob as examples in the first place. This one relies on prime numbers. And just a quick refresher, a prime number is only equal to one times the prime number itself. There are no other multiple multiple factors. There are no other numbers you can multiply together to get the prime number. So if you can get to the value of a number by, by multiplying any other two numbers, it's what we call a composite number and is not a prime number. So the numbers one, two, and three are all prime numbers. They are only divisible by themselves and by one. They, there are no other factors, right, that are whole numbers anyway. 
because the only multiplication you can do to arrive at them is 1 times 1 is 1, 1 times 2 is 2, and 1 times 3 is 3, respectively. 4 is the smallest composite number because you can multiply 2 times 2 to get 4. So it's 1 times 4 is 4 and 2 times 2 is 4. That means it is not a prime number. It's a composite number. So if a number is only divisible by 1 or itself, then it's a prime number. The RSA algorithm takes two really, really, really big prime numbers, like hundreds of digits long. You might find systems that use a 512-bit prime number, though a lot of security experts would say a 1,024-bit prime number would be better. Then it takes those two already huge numbers. Remember, it has to identify two different prime numbers that are enormous and then multiplies those two enormous prime numbers together to get a new number. This number is called the modulus. It then requires the calculation of the totient of that product. And this is where you say, wait a minute, hang on, what the heck is a totient? At least if you are like me. I was an English lit major. I never got to totients in my studies in math. But a totient is a number um, that describes the number of integers smaller than a given number that are coprime with that number. Oh, that's a lot of numbers. Let me try that again. Let's say you've got a really big number and the totient is all of the integers that are smaller than this really big number that are coprime with that really big number, which means they share no factors except one with that really big number. So let's use an example because this sounds really, really vague, right? Let's say that we have the number 14. We we got to 14 uh, and we took prime numbers. We took the number 2 and the number 7 and we multiplied those together. Those are our prime numbers we started with. So again, this is just an example. You would never use numbers this small. You multiply 2 times 7, you get 14. 14 is your modulus. Then you say, what is the totient of 14? The answer is 6, and here is why. First, you take all the integers that are less than 14, which is 1 through 13, right? You you can't use 14. You have to use all the ones that are, all the whole numbers that are lower than 14. So 1 through 13. But the numbers also have to be co-prime with 14. That means they cannot share any factors that 14 has. Now, the factors of 14 are 2 and 7, so we get those off the list. Those those get removed. So 2 and 7 are gone. But you also have to eliminate the numbers 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12. All of those numbers have 2 as a factor, and 14 also has 2 as a factor. So those numbers are not co-prime, so you strike those. Once you've gotten rid of those, the numbers you have left that are lower than 14 are 1, 3, 5, 9, 11, and 13. Now, 9 is not a prime number, right? You can multiply 3 times 3 and get 9, but it is co-prime with 14 because the two numbers share no common factors except for the number 1. So when you count up all the co-primes that are left after you've eliminated the numbers that are not co-primes, you find out you've got 6 numbers total. You have 1, 3, 5, 9, 11, 13. That's six numbers. So the totient for 14 is 6. By the way, there's actually a formula for calculating the totient of your huge number that is really, really easy. And what you do is you take your first prime number, the one that you, you know, in our case we use 2 and 7. Let's say you take your first prime number, you subtract 1 from that. You take your second big prime number, you subtract 1 from that. And you multiply those two new numbers together, and that is your totient. So in our example, we take our two prime numbers of 2 and 7. We subtract 1 from each. That means we have a 1 and a 6. We multiply these two new numbers together. 1 times 6 is 6. That's the totient for 14. It's the fastest way to calculate the totient. Next, because we're not done yet, you have to select an integer, but not just any integer. The integer you select has to be larger than the number 1, but smaller than the totient of your big old number that you generated earlier by multiplying those two prime numbers together and then taking the totient from it. In fact, it has to be a coprime with the totient and the modulus itself. So it cannot share a factor with the totient or with the modulus. So again, in my example, where I had 14 as our modulus, the totient was 6. We need an integer between 1 and 6 that is coprime with both 6 and 14. 
So we cannot use one because the number has to be bigger than one. We can't use two or three or four because all of those share factors with six, right? It has to be co-prime, so you cannot use those. The only number available to us is five. This becomes our encryption key. Figuring out the decryption key is a little more complicated, and that's probably making some of you scratch your heads because what I just went through is fairly complicated for those of us who are not very mathematically inclined. I include myself in that number, by the way. The prime number we arrived at for the encryption key has a greatest common divisor, or GCD, of 1 with the totient of that number. So we take the multiplicative inverse of this number with respect to the totient using the extended Euclidean algorithm. Yeah, it gets super duper complicated, and I'm pretty sure I can't explain it, especially not in audio alone. So the we'll, we'll skip ahead. You just imagine you do some more complicated math, and you denote this result with the letter D, and that represents the private key. Now, I use the prime numbers 2 and 7 in my example only because they were easy to work with, but that's precisely why no one in their right mind would ever use those to encrypt anything. You want to have a pretty large number to work with. And even your public key should be pretty big. A standard public key is 65,537, which is a prime number. And as long as it has no common factors with the modulus, you're good to go. And the only way it could have a a common factor with the modulus is if it was itself a factor of your big number. But that's not likely to happen. So you want a big key, but you don't want it to be too big. And the reason for that is encryption is more efficient if you're using smaller numbers as your keys. Uh, remember, like, essentially encryption involves doing lots of math problems. The bigger the numbers are for your math problems, the bigger the results are going to be, and the larger it's going to make your message. So if you're trying to encrypt a very long message to someone, then it ends up being a much larger amount of data, like sometimes several times larger than the original amount of data. And if you get too big, you may not even be able to send it if the service you're using has a limit on the size of messages. So... If you go too big, it gets inefficient and clunky and sometimes too big for you to even handle. But if you go too small, you risk the possibility of someone being able to suss out the private key given enough time and processing power. So it's a balancing act. One thing you could do to make things move more quickly is to use this public and private key approach to establish a new encryption key between the two communicators. This would be called a session key. So Alice would send Bob a message she would use Bob's public encryption key that's, and she would encrypt a message that says, hey, got a second? And she sends it to Bob. And Bob receives the message. He uses his private key. He decodes the message and he sends a message back to Alice using her public encryption key that says, sure, I do. And here's a brand new private key that we can use for each other for the purposes of this conversation session. And then Alice would decrypt this message and they would each have a private key that they could use to each other, a symmetric key. All subsequent messages between Bob and Alice would use this new private encryption methodology. And we call this symmetric because you're using the same key to encrypt and decrypt. And uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be able to send this to each other because it would be public information and everyone would have a copy of your key. Using the public-private key message to first send this is clever because the first message, anyone could intercept it, but they're not going to know what's in it. And then all subsequent messages would be using a totally different uh, uh, encryption methodology. So even if someone were to monitor this communication, the communications they would see would be encrypted in different ways, and that would make it practically impossible to figure out what was going on. You could even go a step further and have a new key generated with essentially every single message. So it's essentially a one ahead. Each message gets a new key to be encrypted by. And since it keeps changing each time someone sends a message, like Bob sends Alice a new message and says, uh, uh, secret, 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 brand new key. Alice uses the brand new key to part her message in to Bob. And it says more secrets, more secrets, more secrets, new brand new key. Bob uses the, uh, the, the key from one session earlier to unlock Alice's message reads it, then uses the brand new key to send the next message. You could keep doing this forever. You could keep sending a brand new key with every single message and it would make your communications very secure. It would be a little slow because you would have to, 
do this decryption encryption thing every single step and you wouldn't be able to repeat the steps because they'd be using a new key every time, but it'd be really secure. And in fact, there are some messaging apps that use this kind of methodology. So the really big benefit of symmetric encryption is that, well, one, it's faster than using public and private key approach. But another is that it limits the number of times that you use the public key. And that can be a good thing. Now, it's not easy with today's computers, but at least the, it's at least theoretically possible that hackers could suss out a public encryption key and work backward to figure out the private encryption key. It's a non-trivial problem. It requires a ton of computer processing power, and it's not likely to happen if you're using really secure encryption. But the more frequently you use the same public key, the more data hackers have to work with, and they can start looking for patterns. Patterns are the bane of encryption. Um, when you have patterns, then you can start to establish rules. And when you start to establish rules, you can start working backward and figuring out what generates those rules. And eventually you figure out the methodology for encoding the information. So you don't want to have patterns in your encoded information if possible. If you keep using the public-private key method and that's all you're using, then hackers eventually can gather enough information that if they have a sufficiently powerful computer and enough time on their hands, they can decrypt it. Uh, that if is a big one, though, because if you're using pretty strong encryption, it would take weeks or months or more likely years to decrypt the messages. Now, in a recent episode, I talked about quantum computers. With a classical computer, like I said, figuring out prime numbers for a really large number takes an incredibly long time. Depending on the size of the number, it could take, like I said, years for a classical computer to sort it out. But a quantum computer, if it's sufficiently powerful, could solve those problems much more quickly using a process called Shor's algorithm. So if you have a quantum computer with a sufficient number of qubits, you could crack this type of encryption relatively quickly and pretty reliably. So it's therefore imperative to look at new methods of encryption in order to avoid a situation in which the first really powerful quantum computer effectively gets a skeleton key to all encrypted messages that have been sent across the Internet. Now let's talk a second about the history of end-to-end encryption and then a bit more about the apps and services that use it and some that do not use it. In 1975, Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman proposed the concept of using public and private key combinations in order to distribute uh, symmetric encryption keys. It's possible they weren't the first to consider this, too. There's been some evidence to suggest the British Secret Service had come up with a similar approach, but never really did anything with it. Their idea was the basis not just for the RSA algorithm but a few others as well, like the Elgamal crypto system, which was named after Tahir Elgamal, or the DSA system, also known as the Digital Signature Algorithm, invented by a guy named uh, David Kravitz, as well as the Diffie-Hellman crypto system, which obviously was created by Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman. Then along came PGP, which stands for Pretty Good Privacy. The crypto system is a hybrid system. It was proposed by Phil Zimmerman in 1991. Zimmerman graduated from Florida Atlantic University with a degree in computer science, and he was active in a project called The Freeze, also known as the Nuclear Weapons Freeze Campaign. The purpose of this organization was to try and curtail nuclear arms production in an effort to de-escalate mounting global tensions and to remove a... a an existential threat to the human race. And Zimmerman created PGP to allow for secure email communications among various parties to make their efforts more effective and less likely to get snooped on. Now, when you use PGP, the first thing it does is it takes your plain text message and compresses it. And so it makes it smaller, which is one benefit, but it also helps to make it more secure because it reduces patterns that might otherwise be useful to hackers who want to decrypt messages. It also generates a session key. That's that symmetric encryption key I was just talking about that would be used throughout the length of any particular communication session. The way PGP does this is pretty cool. It actually generates the data for the session key based on your mouse movements and keystrokes you've typed. So it's based upon physical interactions you've had with your computer not with any other just random prime number. 
All of this, the compressed plain text message and the unique session key generated from your physical interactions with your computer, then get encoded using this public-private key strategy. Uh, if Alice sends a message using PGP to Bob, first Alice's computer will compress her message, it will append a session key based on Alice's typing and mouse movements, and then encrypt all of that mess using Bob's public key. Then the message travels to Bob, Bob uses his private key to decode the message, and he can see the session key Alice has set up and then use that to communicate back with her securely for the rest of the session. Zimmerman's PGP was more than just pretty good. It was actually a brilliant approach to encryption. It became adopted by many organizations and people across the United States and then the world, and that caused a huge amount of trouble for Zimmerman. For one thing, RSA security wished to question Zimmerman about the use of the RSA algorithm within PGP. There were some disputes about the licensing. Then the United States Customs Services decided to investigate Zimmerman because of the distribution of PGP beyond the U.S. borders. Because in the United States, there was the Arms Control Act, and it listed cryptographic software as a type of munitions, which would mean if Zimmerman had allowed his work to go outside the U.S., he would be in very big trouble because it was similar to shipping prohibited weapons outside the country. And if you think that sounds a little crazy, that software could be considered a weapon... Well, welcome to the 21st century. Zimmerman was never officially charged with any crime, but the investigation did last several years. Eventually, the courts determined that PGP did not fall into a category that would be considered munitions. And today, his PGP technology is the property of the security firm Symantec, which purchased the PGP Corporation back in 2010. Now, I've got a little bit more I want to say about end-to-end encryption, but before I get to that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. So the PGP strategy also allows for digital signatures, which are a way for you to make sure the message being sent to you hasn't been intercepted and altered in any way. Plus, you can be sure that the message came from the person it claims to have come from. Digital signatures in PGP use what is called a one-way hash function. The implementation PGP uses is to take the message, which can be of any length, Uh, So let's say it's a really, really long message. Then it does a mathematical process on it to arrive at a fixed length output, such as 160 bits. So the 160 bits does not contain the entire message. It represents the entire message. It's a fine distinction. It doesn't matter how long that original message was. The goal is to create this shorter hash that speeds things up. It doesn't make style file sizes balloon from the encryption process, the hash function depends entirely on the message itself. So if someone were to change even one single bit, as in one zero or one of information in that message, the hash value would also change because it depends upon the nature of the rest of the message. So if you send a message to someone and they know what the hash value is supposed to be, they can verify that the associated message was never altered. So they've got essentially the the hash value it's supposed to be and the hash value it actually is. If those two numbers are different, then they know that something has happened to the message in transit. The way PGP does this is to generate a hash called the message digest. It uses the message digest and the private key to create a signature. Then PGP sends the plain text and signature together to the recipient. The recipient uses PGP to recompute the message digest to verify it is from the supposed sender and that it hasn't been altered. And if the recomputed message digest is the same as the original that was in the message, everything's good. If the recomputed one is not the same, then something has happened. And you know that the the trail between the two has been compromised in some way. By the way, this does not reveal the private key to the other person. The private key remains private. Um, PGP is able to protect that, which is kind of cool. All right, so who uses end-to-end encryption and who does not? Well, among the messaging apps that use end-to-end encryption, there is the Big Daddy WhatsApp. That's an incredibly popular messaging app. It is owned by Facebook now. It, it what didn't start off as a Facebook project. It was purchased by Facebook. The original messaging app was co-founded by Jan Kum, who grew up in the Ukraine, 
and wanted to create a way in which people could send messages safely without the fear of an oppressive presence, like a totalitarian government agency, for example, that could read all of them. Now, he had moved to America when he was 16, and years later he met with a guy named Brian Acton, and Acton became the other co-founder of WhatsApp. They created the messaging service, and they used end-to-end encryption to protect users' privacy. When Facebook uh, purchased WhatsApp, rather, many security experts expressed concern because they were worried that Facebook might chip away at the messaging app's security and allow Facebook the chance to mine these messages and then sell that data to advertisers. And there have been accusations levied at Facebook claiming as much. Tobias Bolter, a security researcher, told reporters at The Guardian that Facebook had the ability to generate new encryption keys for offline users and thus access messages that would be sent to them. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Facebook has denied that they have the ability to read any messages from uh, their users, but there's still a lot of concern about WhatsApp in general. Another app that uses end-to-end encryption is Signal. Signal started out as Text Secure Private Messenger, and you can also use Signal to make encrypted voice and video calls to other users. These follow a similar approach to messages and emails. Um, The protocols are obviously a little different because they're different media or different uh, forms of messaging, but the general principle remains the same. The idea that all the information being sent across these channels is encrypted all the way until it gets to the destination device. Wire is another popular app, particularly in countries belonging to the European Union. It's also free and open source. The app does store a record of the people you've communicated with. That's a little problematic from a security standpoint. Now, the purpose of storing this information is to make it easier to synchronize an experience across devices, because one of the big drawbacks of the public-private key approach is that, ideally, you have that private key on one and only one device. If you share a private key across multiple devices, then you have increased the possibility of someone getting access to your private key. But if you lose the device that the private key is on, you lose all your messaging history as well. Because remember, no one else can see what that encrypted stuff is because it all used your public key that could only be decoded by your private key. So if you lose your private key, all you have is gobbledygook. You can't read it. Uh, That is, of course, if if you haven't been storing messages in some other fashion, uh, like in plain text. Some services you could, as a user, opt to store your messages using a third-party application. This would be like you receive the message, you decrypt the message when you receive it, you have the message in plain text because you have to in order to read it or or view it or whatever it may be, and then you decide you want to save that message. Well, when you're saving that message, you may be saving that in plain text using a third-party app, in which case all that secrecy for the communication is undone by your storage. It becomes a security vulnerability. So you could be super careful about messages as they speed to and from your device, but if you're then storing everything on a cloud server somewhere, you could still technically be allowing some other company access to that information after the fact. But if you don't do that, if you lose your phone, then you could lose all those messages, all the histories, all the communications. So it's a tough situation. Uh, Also, by the way, this means that the that hackers will sometimes concentrate not on trying to intercept a message in the middle because if it's encrypted, it could be more trouble than what it's worth to try and decrypt it. Or instead of doing that, they'll they'll try and target the end device. So in other words, they're actually trying to get physical access to your uh, computer or phone you know, or somehow be able to look at your screen remotely once the decryption process has happened. So they want to compromise your device at that point because it's relatively easier than trying to decrypt one of these heavily encrypted messages on the Internet. Anyway, Wire has said that a user, uh, once a user deactivates, deletes his or her account, then the service deletes all the associated information with that account. All the stored uh, connections, everything is gone once you delete your account with Wire, according to the service. There's also a multi-platform app that's popular that's called Telegram. Uh, Telegram, you can search for people by username 
rather than by phone number. A lot of apps require that you know the phone number of the person you're trying to contact. But Telegram, when you uh, create a, a uh, profile, in addition to creating a profile based on a telephone number, you can create a username. And so people can search for you on that. It makes it a little easier to communicate with people. Uh, there's also another app called Wicker, W-I-C-K-R, which is really popular in enterprises. So in business, not necessarily as much with uh, individual users. But as for email, there are services like TorGuard, HushMail, MailFence, uh, Tutanota, Runbox, ProtonMail. All of these use various encryption strategies to keep messages safe. Not all of them necessarily use end-to-end encryption. Some of them use other methods for encryption than end-to-end, but they all do some form of encryption on their messages. Whereas popular email services like Gmail do not support end-to-end encryption. And one uh, reason they might not, I can't say this is for sure, sure, but one reason they may not do that is that it's possible that they want to mine all that information for the possibility of advertising against it. So in other words, you send a message, Alice sends a message to Bob, Alice talks about uh, all these nice flowers that she saw on a recent trip. And then Alice starts seeing ads mysteriously whenever she's using a Google service that is talking about flowers. Well, that raises some very tricky ethical questions. Uh, now, whether or not that's actually going on, that's a, a, that's a matter of of uh, investigation on a case-by-case basis. You know, not all emails are necessarily being mined for information, but they all could be if they're not being encrypted end-to-end. So there are a lot of uh, advocates for privacy out there who some of them will say, hey, don't even bother sending me any email if it's not encrypted. I'm not interested. You, If you're not using an encryption service of some sort, then I do not want to communicate with you because I I prefer to keep my privacy private. And that's a legitimate argument, I think. I don't think it's not necessarily the indication that someone is up to something, you know, suspicious. But it's important to remember that without that end-to-end encryption, it is a possibility that someone along the way is reading your messages besides the person you're sending them to. I would like to thank our anonymous listener for asking uh, for us to cover this topic. It is very fascinating. Uh, in the UK in particular, this is an ongoing issue where the UK government would love to see end-to-end encryption go away because they worry that it's a methodology of uh, uh, that, that terrorists are using to communicate with one another and that this creates a problem because you can't really investigate those terrorist cells, uh, at least not through the means of their communication because you can't decrypt it. There have been people who have called for a back door of some sort to end-to-end encryption services, which defeats the purpose. A back door is essentially a vulnerability you introduce on purpose so that a party apart from the intended recipient can decode a message. And that, that raises enormous security problems. Like you don't create a back door because that means you're introducing the possibility of a hacker getting access to this information. You don't want to do that. That's that's bad security. So there, that's not a great uh, strategy moving forward is trying to force services to create a backdoor. It pretty much breaks the whole service in the first place. So uh, I don't know what the solution here is. I don't think that... That getting rid of a technology because some people use it improperly is necessarily going to work. Uh, that is, uh, it is, it is, it raises a lot of questions. And it also means that you have to put an awful lot of trust in the governing agency. And, uh, that can be difficult to do. And also, anytime you have a backdoor Anytime you have any sort of vulnerability, if people know it exists, then you've just given hackers a target to shoot for. And even if it works as it's supposed to, where everyone is behaving themselves uh, from the good guy standpoint, let's say that the government is a good guy in this in this scenario, that both Alice and Bob are behaving themselves. The government is behaving itself. It's not investigating Alice and Bob. It has no reason to suspect them. So they're able to send their messages securely. But 
there is this backdoor option that is available, then hackers could target that and then they compromise the system and then Alice and Bob's messages are laid bare for the hackers because you've just painted a huge target on the service. It's not great. And not every end-to-end encryption service is infallible. Uh, There have been security experts who have accused Apple in particular of implementing a poor end-to-end encryption strategy for their iMessage app and have stated that there are ways that that could be defeated using classical computer systems. So it is possible to do this in a way that isn't effective, but the actual idea itself is incredibly effective if you implement it properly and you're using classical computers as your uh, potential threat. Once quantum computers actually become on part of the scene for realsies, when they're sufficiently powerful, it'll be a totally different story because a, a sufficiently powerful quantum computer will completely lay bare all of these encryption schemes. So you have to come up with something new. But I talked a little bit about that in one of the IBM Think episodes. So you can go back and listen to that if you want to learn more. As for you guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I I welcome you to send those uh, suggestions to me. You can email the show. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember to follow us on Instagram. And remember, typically... I record these episodes live on twitch.tv slash techstuff on Wednesdays and Fridays. This particular episode I'm recording right now was an exception because, again, I'm in a hotel and I'm using hotel Wi-Fi, which is not the greatest thing to use for streaming. But usually I stream live from the studio on Wednesdays and Fridays. Go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. You'll see the schedule there. I hope to see you in the chat room. And you can chat with me as I'm recording. You can have a grand old time. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 